This morning I want us to turn in God's Word to Psalm 25. Psalm 25. And we'll read the words of this psalm together as we prepare our hearts to hear the Word of God explained. Psalm 25. You follow as I read a psalm of David. Unto thee, O Lord, do I lift up my soul. O my God, I trust in thee. Let me not be ashamed. Let not mine enemies triumph over me. Yea, let none that wait on thee be ashamed. Let them be ashamed which transgress without cause. Show me thy, thy ways, O Lord, and teach me thy paths. Lead me in thy truth and teach me. For thou art the God of my salvation. On thee do I wait all the day. <coughs> Remember, O Lord, thy tender mercies. And thy loving kindnesses. For they have been ever of old. Remember not the sins of my youth. Nor my transgressions. According to thy mercy. Remember thou me for thy goodness sake. O Lord. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore will he teach sinners in the way. The meek will he guide in judgment. And the meek will he teach his way. All the paths of the Lord are mercy and truth. unto such as keep his covenant and his testimonies. For thy name's sake, O Lord, pardon mine iniquity. For it is great. What man is he that feareth the Lord? Him shall he teach in the way that he shall choose. His soul shall dwell at ease, and his seed shall inherit the earth. The secret of the Lord is with them that fear him, and he will show them his covenant. Mine eyes are ever toward the Lord, for he shall pluck my feet out of the net. Turn thee unto me, and have mercy upon me, for I am desolate and afflicted the troubles of my heart are enlarged oh bring thou me out of my distresses look upon mine affliction and my pain and forgive all my sins consider mine enemies for they are many and they hate me with cruel hatred oh keep my soul and deliver me let me not be ashamed, for I put my trust in thee. Let integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait on thee. Redeem Israel, O God, out of all his troubles. May the Lord bless his word to our hearts for his name's sake. This morning I want us to particularly consider the statement that David makes there in verse 11. For he asks the Lord to pardon his iniquity. But then he makes 
an astounding confession along with that plea and that is for it is great for it is great I want us to think on that phrase this morning I want us to think about perhaps the very truth about the nature of sin that it suggests to us but before we go any further let's just ask the Lord to meet with us Father in heaven now I pray that you will bless this word to us today I pray that you will allow the Spirit of God to be that one who takes the Word and uses it in our hearts and in our minds, that he would be the one who preaches this day. Lord, I pray that thou would direct all things that have to do with this time in the Word. Lord, I plead the blood over my own heart and mind. pray that you will bless as these words go forward with the anointing of the words by the Spirit who first spoke them and caused them to be recorded. Lord, I pray now that you will bless for Jesus' sake. For we pray it in his name. Amen. Psalm 25 is a psalm that flowed out of the heart of David. He speaks to the Lord that which weighs upon his heart in a mighty way. And if you were to take this psalm and to try to break it down into what David was talking about before the Lord, you would see that David concerned himself with two things. First, he mentions the great oppression of his enemies and the need of his deliverance of the Lord. I'll just simply say concerning that, that this is a common need among the people of God for great is the power of the enemy against us and the ability of our own arm is weak to withstand the oppression of our enemy and I'll go on to say we have neither wit nor wisdom to overcome the wiles of the devil or those that he would empower to destroy the righteous we are helpless against our enemies unless the Lord our God proves to be our strength and our shield. Secondly, David points to his sin and failure. It would almost seem as if he is comparing the strength of his enemy's oppression to the strength of his own sin. Neither sin nor foe is that which any saint is able to withstand in his own strength. This is both an obvious and a very strong point lying plainly in the words of this psalm. Great is the enemy and great is my sin. That is David's confession. But this confession brings up a very interesting question, at least to my mind. We might understand how a man of God, a man after God's own heart, in fact, would have great enemies. In fact, it would be very surprising if this was not the case. But how does a man that walks so close to God and has, as it were, a heart that's after the heart of God confess that he is plagued by great sin? In fact, many conclude that if a man is close to God, He cannot suffer from a sinful heart in any significant way. Well, let's just say that such thinking is very wrong 
and that very often such conclusions are harmful. Now I suggest that the man who is truly after God's heart will not see his sin in any other way but great. If you're close to God, you're not going to look at your sin and say anything else about it, but it's great. Consider this. When a man's heart and mind are made clear by the ministry of the Holy Spirit, he sees sin as a great matter. It doesn't matter what the conclusions of others are. I say that the fact that David does not hide or dismiss his sin shows the truth of the issue. He saw sin as it was. Further, David reflected on the words of verse 10. And as his mind goes over these things that you see in that verse, he comes to an assessment of himself and of his condition before God. Verse 10 says, All the paths of the Lord are mercy and truth unto such as keep his covenant and his testimonies. The ways of God are the ways of mercy. It struck me as I was thinking about this. Here's an interesting thought, perhaps, an interesting idea. David was under the weight of mercy. Think about that with me. David feels the weight of God's mercy. You say, wait a minute, he should be feeling the weight of his sin. No, I want you to think of it. When a man's heart is really in tune with God, he sees what mercy is, and it humbles him. He sees the mercies of God, and it breaks him. He sees the mercies of God, and it causes him to think of himself as one who is utterly, utterly unworthy. And yes, that's what's happening here. David looks at the mercies of God, and he quickly comes to the conclusion, my sin is great. He holds dear the truth of God. And these thoughts, these truths, also point out the need for the pardon of God. My sin is great, and how needy I am for my God to cleanse me. I need my God to pardon my sin, to take it away. So I suggest to you, far from being distant from the heart of God, David's closeness brings him to reckon with sin. But the fact that David does bring up his sin and holds it up to God in the light as he does says much about the sin and the nature of it that we need to consider. So that's my subject for today. I want us to consider then, when David says my sin is great, what does that mean to you and me? How does that relate to us? What does that teach us about the nature of of sin. Well, my subject is this. We have here a God-given lesson. A lesson given to every believer on the nature of sin. Now, I want you to think about it with me. I'm going to try to be very simple. I want you to see with me the first lesson of this scripture, of this confession of David, of this portion and the thoughts in it is this. Sin is only great. You think about this. You know, let it sink. Sin is only great. 
There is no such thing as sin that is trivial. There is no such thing as a sin that is of no importance. Such notions are the suggestion of an enemy that would lull us to sleep and so come to destruction. If you don't think that your sin is bad, what do you do about the sin? What's the answer? Nothing. If you don't think that it is anything other than great, what do you do about it? Nothing. That's exactly what the devil would have you to think. It's not so bad. Don't worry about it. You know, how many other people are doing worse than what you do? Oh, don't get yourself in such a knot. Don't worry about sin. It's a little thing. You know, it does seem, you and I will have to confess this, it does seem that some of the sins that we commit are little and have no need to care for them. In fact, do we not from time to time justify the need of this act that we do as the need of the moment? Well, I had to, you know. Uh, this was pressing on me. These people were pushing me. This was, this was my need. I mean, I, I just had to do that which was not right. You know, the scripture, as I was thinking about this, suggested to my mind, and I'm just going to go over this with you, a couple of instances where I thought, if anything could be said, it was a little, really, this is sort of little, and yet the Lord did not excuse it, and teaches the lesson that there is no such thing as a little sin. I had some things come to my mind. Perhaps you remember in Numbers chapter 15, the Lord had given Israel his expectation of how they were to handle the Sabbath day. And in Numbers 15, it says that there was a man who went out and gathered a few sticks. Now, let me ask you. If you went out into your yard and picked up some sticks, do you think uh, mom and dad would be upset with you? They'd probably say, thank you. No, I don't have to run over them with a mower. Pick up a few sticks. It doesn't seem like a terribly terribly grievous thing. But you know what happened with that man? Israel stoned him. He died. What's, what's, the, what's the thing? He just picked up a few sticks and yet he died for that. What's the... How can that be so bad? In fact, to anyone today, such a matter would seem extremely and extraordinarily insignificant. The point was that God had specifically instructed his people how they were to obey and observe the Sabbath. This man disregarded. His sin wasn't, oh, there's a stick. I think, you know, it doesn't look good in that place. I'll pick it up and put it in the trash. It wasn't, no, that was not it. Or we'll pick this thing up and I'll just put it on the pile later and we'll, we'll use it when we cook. That was not the issue. The man said, I don't think that God has the right to really tell me that I can go out there and what I can do and what I can't do. And this is so small. This is so trivial. It doesn't matter. I'm going to just do my own thing on the Lord's Sabbath and it doesn't matter because it's just insignificant. Because that does not work. That's sin. Is rebellion 
because it disregards the direct instruction of God. Let me give you another one. Perhaps you remember the children of Israel in the desert were moaning and groaning because they didn't have water. And from time to time throughout the throughout that portion of history where Israel was in the desert, you read that the people got themselves so upset with Moses that they threatened to kill him. Moses was having to deal with a bunch of people that were just almost seemingly nutty in their self-desires and the things that they were demanding. So they demand of him water. And Moses, offended for God, and offended because the people were so miserably groaning against God, comes to the rock, and rather than speaking to the rock the second time that he has done this, he strikes the rock. What happens? The rock gives out water. You say, okay, see, everything's fine. Everything is fine. You see, the end is just exactly what was needed. The end was the meeting of the people's need. It was just a good end. It was all right and good. No, it wasn't. The Lord had to come to Moses later and say what? You have disobeyed and you have shamed your God to the extent that you will not live to go into the land of promise. And Moses comes to the Lord after this and said, Lord, will you, will you take my repentance? Will you take my turning from this? The Lord said, no, this was a very great wickedness. Why? That rock stood for the Lord Jesus. That rock stood as a picture of how the Lord Jesus both washes away sins and then supplies the grace of his people to go forward. Moses desecrated that picture by his action. See, but it was a little thing. I mean, he was justified. These people made him so angry in his spirit that he did it out of jealousy for God. Didn't make a difference. There's another incident I'm going to present to you. This one, the other two, perhaps, were not, in my mind, as, um, how do I say, hard to understand, hard to get your mind around. But perhaps you remember in Second Samuel chapter 6, you read when David was bringing the ark to Jerusalem, and they had the ark on a cart being drawn along. First, let me ask you this. When God gave instruction as to how the Ark of the Covenant was to be moved, how was that to be moved? Does anybody know? Was it to be on a cart? Well, the answer is it was to be on the shoulders of the Levites on the staves that were prepared for it. Who was it that moved the Ark on a cart? It wasn't the people of God. It was the Philistines. Well, here is this moment. And David is bringing the ark back to Jerusalem. And wouldn't you know, the oxen that are drawing the cart stumble, and the cart shakes. And you have a man who's walking beside the cart. And I want you to think about this with me. This man, whose name was Uzzah, 
His heart loved God. His heart loved the ark. He was fearful, fretful. He wanted... He was afraid something was going to happen to that ark. So he walked beside it. And when the oxen stumbled, and that ark shook, and it looked like, oh no, this thing is going to come tumbling down. What did Uzzah do? I've got to stop it. I've got to keep it up there. And he touched the ark. And what happened to Uzzah? He died right there. Say, well, wait a minute. Here's a man that loved God, that loved his ark, that was trying to do that which was the very best. His heart was not actively evil. I mean, he was not Ahab. He was one given to the glory of God, and yet his care caused him to do that which was against God's law. You know, in some ways, you would look at Uzzah and you say what he tried to do was almost noble. But he died for it. What's the, what's the issue? You say, well, that was such a small thing. That, was, that wasn't really even an offense. Yes, it was. My point to you is that you can look in Scripture and you can find instances where men would say, well, what he did was such a small thing. But what was the ramification for it? One man was stoned, one man was prevented from going to the land of promise, and the other man died on the spot. Immense, immense punishment. But the point is this. In the sight of a holy God, all sin is great. You know, the Lord Jesus himself, when Peter, now again, think about this with me. Did Peter love the Lord Jesus? Did I ask a hard question? Did Peter love the Lord Jesus? Yeah. And one day, the Lord Jesus was walking with his disciples and he told them, I'm going to go up to Jerusalem and they're going to kill me. And Peter turned to the Lord Jesus because he loved him and said, Lord, no, no, no. That can't be. That's not going to be. No, no, no. Was what Peter said out of a a heart that despised Christ? No, it was out of a heart that loved Christ. He wanted Christ to be saved. But he said the wrong thing. He said that which was against the will of God. And how did the Lord Jesus respond to him? He said, oh, Peter, you're, mis- you're just mistaken, Peter. I know it's a light little thing. Don't say that again. How did the Lord respond to him? Get thee behind me, Satan. He called Peter Satan. Wouldn't that break your heart? If you, Especially, not, not if maybe your mom or dad or your brother or your sister says, get thee behind me, Satan. Well, that'd be one. But what happens if you knew you were standing in front of the Lord Jesus and the Lord Jesus says that to you. What would happen to your heart? That was a strong rebuke. For such a little thing. Do you remember when the angel came to the father of John the Baptist? 
and said, you're going to have a son. Your wife is going to have a son. And you're going to call his name John. And the man's name, of course, was Zacharias. And he says, how's this going to happen? Doubt, unbelief. There it is. What happened to Zacharias because of his unbelief that day? Well, some would say his wife got an immense blessing because he was not able to speak for another nine months or whatever it was. But the Lord took his voice right away from him. To put that was hard for just offering a question? No, it was unbelief. My point is this. There is no such thing. There is no such thing as little or meaningless sin. All sin is great. All sin must be looked on as great and loathed as a vile serpent with deadly fangs. And I suggest to you that the closer the man of God is to the Lord, the more he'll be afraid of sin. He knows that it is not without a consequence. Sin always has a consequence. Be sure your sin will find you out. He knows that it separates him from God. He fears that. Does sin really separate from God? Well, what does Isaiah 59 say? But your sins have separated you between you and your God, and your sins have hid his face from you, that he will not hear. Oh, and I say to you this, all it takes is one sin to lead a man to hell. Only one. And I'm not going to be classified. It doesn't matter which sin you choose. You know, there are some who say, there's only one sin that's out there that causes a man to go to hell, and that's the sin of unbelief. It doesn't matter what sin it is. That's, that's, that's silliness. And by the way, I, there, I, I, you really probably can't take any sin that a man commits and say, it is only this sin and doesn't have other sins along with it that accompany it. Because usually it's a compendium of things. All have sinned. We are to see our sin as great. Now, I'm going to hurriedly go through the rest of this because I spent all my time on my first point. I want you to see second with me. Sin is great in its sorrows. Sin is great in its sorrows. That is what you see here in this. When David is before the Lord and he's confessing this out, there's sorrow of his heart. And I say again, sorrow, the sorrow caused by sin is certainly in the meaning of David's words and he knew much of that. Now, we don't need to add instances from Scripture to point out the sting of sin and the sorrow that comes from it. I simply say this. The fact that Scriptures present the Lord Jesus as the man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, as says Isaiah, that should prove the point with no further need of proof. Our sin brings sorrow. Mark it down, mark it down. If you sin, it will make you sorry. You may not feel it in the immediate context of things, but you will at some point. In fact, I think this. Our own experience, and those of you that have lived a little longer than others, will be able to shake the head yes to this. Our own experience tells us that sin brings regret, Sin brings shame. And sin brings sorrow. 
And perhaps you've known what I'm about to say, or you've known somebody where this is true. For some, this sorrow, this regret, this shame is so great that they can't find it possible to get rid of it. They're under the blackness of their sin, and it just haunts them, and it gnaws at them. I know Christians who have been that way. Well, let me say this. This is a by the way, and I say this with all seriousness. There is only one way. There is only one way to be rid of the blackness and sorrow of sin. And I make this statement because it is an issue that is finding some controversy today. Let me put it to you this way. It is not to come to men with your sin that you'll find the remedy. I say that's an old falsehood that is making a large comeback, even among some that consider themselves evangelical. You say, what are you saying? It's the old, it's the adage, tell it to your brother. Let's all share and we'll help each other out of sin. You know, that's the foundation of that thought laid the groundwork for the Roman Catholic ritual of the confessional. No, sir. No, sir. There's only one solution for the sorrow of sin. There's only one remedy for sin and the blackness of it. And that is for you to bring that sin to the feet of Jesus Christ and lay it there openly and leave it there. Christ is the answer for sin. Christ is the defeater of the sorrow of sin. Christ bears our sorrows for us, which means he lifts them from us. Sin is great in its sorrow. That is obvious. I want to point out this too. Sin is also great in its deceit. Lord, pardon my sin, for it is great. It is deceiving me. Over and over in Scripture, men fall into sin because their sinful thinking deceived them about what they would get and how little it would cost. You know, some of you are on the McShane reading program. I am. And just recently we read um, through that portion of the book of Judges that spoke about Samson. Samson is a prime example of what I'm talking about. Samson would go down, you think, how does a man have so little sense? This guy had not the first ounce of common sense, so he was a Nazarite. But how in the world do you think that you're going to go down and play among the Philistines, the people who hate God, the people who love immorality, of which he found himself so prone? How is it that you're going to go down and as the scriptures later say, you're going to take fire into your bosom and not be burned? How do you think that's going to happen? Well, Solomon, or excuse me, Samson was, hey, it's not going to happen to me. <laughs> because when they come upon me, I'll go out against them as I have before, and I will slay them hip and thigh, and I'll take, well, 
whatever I need, whether it's a jawbone of an ass or the gates of the city or a bunch of foxes. I don't know. We'll just make them see how they cannot play with me. <laughs> I can with them, but they can't with me. What happened to Samson? Proverbs chapter 7, you read those words of the simple one that was observed from the window. Oh, this is going to be a great night, was the simple man's saying. And then he went into the spider's parlor, so to speak, and found himself destroyed. Sin is a great liar. It will tell you and see if any of these things have ever been hurt in your own heart. Sin will tell you there's real pleasure found in sin. Perhaps you've heard this. Sin will tell you, you are justified in what you do or say because others deserve what they get and you don't need to take it anymore. Hmm. You ever had that? I'm fed up and I'm not going to take it anymore. Then they deserve what they get. What does sin say? Your old deceitful heart. That's right. Oh, that's right. <laughs> You're justified in losing your temper and running off all kinds of speech that's hateful. How about this? Sin might tell you, you know what? <coughs> you thought this time was good? The next time's going to be even better. What a lie. Or how about this? You can go ahead and do this because no, uh, nothing is going to happen and no one is going to know. Don't worry about it. Be sure your sin will find you out. How about this one is a lie? Maybe you've heard this one. Living righteously brings nothing but hardship and cost. Happiness is when you throw off righteousness and do what you want. How great is the deceit of sin. And how unwise is it to listen to your heart instead of the word of God. What do the Proverbs say? He that trusteth in his heart is a fool. Yes. Also, I point this out. Number four, if you're keeping track, sin is great in its blindness. Sin is great in its blindness. Sin will never let you know where it will lead. In fact, it will always have another end that it promises you than where it actually leads you to be. I say, here's the truth. When your heart is sick with sin, you cannot see where it will take you. You know, David had no idea that his sin with Bathsheba would lead to murder, to the death of an infant, and the ruin of his house. No, when David was engaged in that sin, what was it telling him? This is the most wonderful thing, well, whatever it is. Now, he didn't know this. He was blind to it. You know, and I'm going to put it even to an, another frame. I'm going to just take it and put it into it. Those that were greatly used of God also didn't, don't see what happens. You know, when Paul and Barnabas 
that uh, rightfully probably could be called the greatest missionary team that God ever put on this earth. When they started their argument, which was really, really, really nothing but a petty thing, over whether John Mark should be excused and reconciled and helped and brought back into the service, when they argued over that thing, it was, as the scriptures tells us, it was so sharp that their contention, in other words, their pride, their self-justification, was so sharp between these two great servants of God that it said that they broke from one another and one went one way and the other went one another way. We don't have anything in Scripture that tells us really that they ever reconciled. I hope they did. I'm sure that put, there's evidences later that Paul softened because he writes about John Mark in the book of Second uh, Timothy. Bring him along for he's profitable to me for the ministry. But there was a terrible break. And I'd say this. Neither of them could have imagined that this issue, this controversy, this contention would lead to where it did. Well, God overruled. He made two teams instead of one out of that, but that was not certainly a noble thing. There was sin involved with both of those men. So I say sin blinds. It holds you bound in ignorance and at the same time justifies your heart and tells you that you can see everything. brings a man to say, you know, everyone else, most of, God, most of all God is wrong. I am right. Sin blinds. I'm going to suggest to you two other things here. I, I want to get to my last point, but I'm going to say this. Sin is great in its fear. Sin produces fear. Proverbs 28 verse 1, the wicked flee when no man pursueth. Yes, there's a the effect of fear. I'll also say this if you want to add another point. Sin is great as an enslaver. It's hard to break sin. Once you get involved with it, it's hard to break it. In fact, the picture of those that are bound in sin is as those that are in a prison house. Isaiah 42, verse 7, speaking of the nature of the ministry of the Lord Jesus, says that one of his prime works is to open the blind eyes, as we've just said to bring out the prisoners from the prison and to set them and them that sit in darkness out of the prison house. Sin is an enslaver. Do not be do not think that you can sin and set sin aside and go on your way, no sir. But I want to come to this last point. Here's where I really want us to come. And this is it. Sin is great in its required remedy. Why is sin great? Because of what it takes to get sin purged. Again, here's the great point and the proof of all that we have said to this point. The greatness of the power and the devastation of the soul by sin is seen when we consider what it took to take it away. Well, what, took, what takes sin away? When John the Baptist makes that statement, Behold the Lamb of God which taketh away the sin of the world, what is it that took the sin of the world away? Well, Paul makes a statement in Ephesians chapter 2. But now in Christ Jesus, ye who sometimes were far off, 
are made nigh by the blood of Christ. Sin's removal is by blood, but it's the blood of the Lord Jesus. I could just imagine in my mind, as I start down this road on this point, that there might have been somebody who would say, oh boy, now here we're going to hear a message about atonement for sin. Let me just say this. There is nothing that could be heard that would be a sweeter and more powerful consideration than the consideration of Christ atoning for sins. If you know your sins are forgiven, nothing else in life is an issue. I'm going to say something here, just by the way. If you take your bulletin and you look at the reading for today that you have there, I didn't make, not align this message with that bulletin, but see what the bulletin has to say about what I just said. If you know your sins are forgiven, nothing else in life is an issue. But here's the point. You can't free yourself from any part of sin. It's temptation. It's committing. Or it's guilt. You are powerless to deal with sin. It is greater than you are. It is a villain that you cannot face and survive. There's not a man that ever lived that can stand up against his sinful heart. All hearts yield. All hearts turn. All hearts die. Now if you think that you are the first. That can do so. That you can stand up against your sin. And have it not affect you. Then I say. You are the last. In line of the entire number. Of men that lived before you. Because everyone thinks that he is the exception. It's bothered, sin has bothered everybody else in the whole world, but it's not going to be me. After all, I am me. Yeah. As by one man, sin entered into the world, and death by sin. So death passed upon all men. You are not an exception, you cannot stand up to sin. You cannot resist temptation. You cannot rid yourself from the guilt of it. You cannot deal with your sin. Your sin is a giant that is bigger than you, that is stronger than you, knows more about warfare than you do. You are going to be destroyed by sin. Unless you are rescued. (coughs) You know, there are a lot of men... let Let me put it to you this way. What I just said... That every man cannot stand up against sin. Every man does come to that realization. But there are some. That don't come to that realization. Until they wake up in hell. You cannot resist. You cannot remove. You cannot pay for sin yourself. It requires 
the blood of Christ to make you clean and keep you free of the condemnation of sin. The Lord Jesus is the remedy. David comes to God for thy name's sake. Do we ever see in Scripture where the name is presented before us as something that we would plead before the throne of God? Whose name is it? For thy name's sake. O Lord, pardon. In other words, you do the work against my sin. Because I can't. Pardon my my iniquity. For it is great. It is great. So my if you say, well, summarize what you said. Here's, I guess, closing thought. Fear sin. Flee sin. And run to the Lord Jesus. Because sin cannot stand before the Son of God. Sin was totally defeated. The Lord Jesus rescues us from this present evil world. Galatians 1. Well, may the Lord allow our hearts to hear, our minds to receive and believe. Let's all pray. Father in heaven, now we pray that you will bless the word of God. We pray that you will use it for the sake of Christ. In our hearts, that we will be those who quickly turn from sin, realizing that we are those that cannot deal with it. And may we put all our hope and our faith and our trust in the work of the Lord Jesus on Calvary. We pray now that you will bless us as we leave this place. Keep thy spirit upon our hearts and minds that we would continue to be ministered to our God, by our God through the day that he has set up as his own. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.